Our scripture reading this evening is from Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to the end. Isaiah 2, 14 through 23. Let's hear the word of God. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishai and shalt call me no more Baalai. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely." And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, and I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. May God bless his precious word to our souls. Dear church family, if we were to define what it means to be a Christian, we could approach that from a number of different ways, couldn't we? For one, we could say, We need to ask something about that person's life. What sort of life does a Christian live? And Jesus answered that question by saying, If ye love me, you will keep my commandments. So a Christian life is a life that strives to be aligned with the commandments of God. Commandments that teach us the kind of life that God expects from his people. In fact, we can say that a Christian who's not made desirous to follow the commandments of God is a false Christian. He's not a Christian, not a real Christian. In one sense, you can say, even though we never keep them perfectly, We will not enter into heaven unless we keep the commandments of God. Sanctification 
commandment keeping is a fruit of justification. If a man or a woman or a boy or a girl says, it doesn't matter to me if I keep God's commandments, yes or no, he's going to forgive me anyway, that person is not a Christian. That's an antinomian. But you can also approach the question from another way. A Christian isn't only known by what sort of life he lives, but also by what he believes. By what he believes. So in this church, for example, we say we we believe that the Bible teaches lots and lots of things. In fact, we summarize them in the Heidelberg Catechism, the Cans of Dort, the Belgian Confession of Faith, the three ecumenical creeds, the three Westminster Standards. There's nine human documents that are grounded in the Word of God that we believe teach the truth. But most of all, we just believe the Scriptures, don't we? And yet, a person can believe these things with their mind, at least to some degree, and not love them in their soul. And so, we really need to ask another question, don't we? Not just, what sort of life does a Christian live? What sort of things does a Christian believe? But, is a Christian... We need to be willing to deny ourselves for the things we believe in. Jesus said, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to be a Christian, you need to deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. Many people who say they're Christians today really don't deny themselves anything. They seem to just live the way they want to live. What about you and me? Are we ever denying ourselves for the sake of Christ? That's the very definition of a Christian. But perhaps most fundamental of all, and in some ways deeper than the three things I just mentioned, A Christian is someone who knows the Lord, knows the Lord in a way of familiarity, holy familiarity, in a way of intimacy. A genuine Christian is one who longs to know him better, longs to love him more fervently, genuine Christian is someone who the very thought of God could just bring tears to his eyes. He's so lovable. He's so beautiful. He's so perfect. I, I, want, to be, I want to be married to him spiritually if I'm a Christian. And I long, I long for the day, sometimes more fervently, sometimes less, oh yes, but I long for the day when I will be as holy as He is holy, and enjoy Him in absolute perfection, and never break one of His commandments again. You know, in some ways, and this is one of the ways, there are lots of parallels between a very good marriage 
and being a, a good, basic, Christ-loving Christian. In a good marriage, you want to know your spouse better. You want to just love her or him more. It's not coincidence that the Old Testament Hebrew word for intimacy between a man and a woman was often just the word to know. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bare a son. Well, in the Christian spiritual sense, you see, a believer just wants to know Jesus more fully. And the text I want to bring you briefly tonight talks about knowing the Lord in this spiritual marriage. And it says there are three major things involved in that knowing. Now, no doubt there's more, but the text just mentions three. And it's a beautiful portrait of what it means to be a Christian. I want to look at that with you from Hosea 2, 19 and 20. 19 and 20. I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. So tonight I just want to look with you and that's the title of this sermon, with God's help, at marks of being betrothed to the Lord. I want to just set three of them in front of you from our text. First, abiding, abiding in the Lord. Second, blossoming in the Lord, blossoming in the Lord. And third, knowing the Lord, knowing the Lord. So first, God makes with Christians a relationship that is abiding. It's not temporary. It's not something that can be cast off. We, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. And that is confirmed by the opening words of our text. I will betroth thee. I will betroth thee unto me forever. Not just for a year or two or five until one of the two parties in the marriage becomes tired of the other. No, God says, I, my heart is engaged to your heart. In fact, the word betrothal in Bible times, you recall, is like a very, very strong engagement. You actually signed a paper when you got engaged, so to speak, in Bible times. Because it was like, in a way, you were married. You were absolutely committed. You couldn't break a betrothal without divorcing. So just think in terms of a strong, irrevocable engagement. That's what God says. My heart is engaged to you, dear Backsliding people, I will draw you back. It's the whole theme of Hosea, and you know that well. I'm not going to go into all of that tonight. But Hosea talks to us about a child of God that's completely unworthy. But God says, I will betroth thee unto 
you, the unworthy one, forever. I will accept your hand, as it were, uh, in marriage, because I, I love you, because I'm committed to you. God is saying the I do. And he's saying, but I will draw you. I will allure you. Verse 14. I will bring you into the wilderness. I will speak comfortably to you. I will win you over, though you have backslidden from me. It's all just full here in chapter 2, but throughout the book of Hosea, with beautiful, covenantal, abiding, promising language. Language of vows. Language of committal on the part of God, but also on the part of the believer in response to his God. I will betroth thee to me, to me. What an unequal engagement. A holy God, the God of the universe, willing to betroth himself to someone like you and me. Willing to make promises, irrevocable promises, that he will be faithful to a sinner like you and me. He will bind himself to be our God. He will bind us to be his people. And it's this mutual relationship, you see, that we celebrate, that we feast on at the Lord's Supper. It's not that God needs us in any way. Of course not. He doesn't need our love. He, he, after all, is God. He's a God of aseity, that is a total independence and total freedom within himself. He needs nothing outside of himself. But he of his free mercy enters into relationships with us for his glory and our good. And so the great God of heaven and earth, who's not dependent on us in any way, determines from within himself, from all eternity, dear child of God, to love you with an everlasting love. And he will abide with you forever. And the advantages of that accrue on our side of the ledger. We don't come to a God who's in need, but God comes to us as sinners who are in need. The need is felt on our side. Augustine put it so well in his famous statement, Thou hast made us, O God, for thyself, and our heart is restless until we find our rest in thee. The God who knows our needs as fallen sinners will meet those needs. He knows that though he could live without us, we cannot live without him. And that's just the tragedy of this world, isn't it? And the tragedy of a natural fallen heart until we're saved. We, we try to live without God. We try to live in our palaces of glittering sin or in our entertainments, in our laughter until the music is over and we die and the heart of man is as miserable as can possibly be. Earthly pleasure can never satisfy the inner depths of what a person really needs. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. All is vanity. All is striving after the wind, in other words. Only Christ can satisfy 
the heart of man. Only he who says, I will betroth thee unto me forever can give us what we need. And that's the triune God, dear friends. The covenant God speaking to hell-worthy sinners, saying that he will enter into a stable, permanent covenant relationship with us, not only throughout our lifetime, and not only in and beyond death until the resurrection day, but beyond the resurrection day, and through the judgment day, and beyond the judgment day, to the everlasting glory and kingdom which has no end. I will abide with thee forever. What's your only comfort in life and in death and forever, we might add? That I don't belong to myself, but that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, He's even more than a Savior. He doesn't only save me from my sins, but He communicates to me here in Hosea 2.19. His language of love. He loves me. He's engaged Himself to me to bless me, to be my treasure forever and ever. This is a love, an abiding love. The world doesn't understand. The world doesn't know. The world can scarcely imagine a a love that lasts for three decades. It's amazing today, isn't it? You, You move about in the world somewhere. You go to the grocery store and People can see that as a husband and wife, you, you really love each other. They can see and they say, how long have you two been married? And you say, well, 30-some years. They go, wow, how did you manage to stay together all that time? <laughs> it's amazing. What's 30-some years compared to eternity? But God manages, may I say it that way in quotation marks, to stay with His people to abide with them forever and ever despite all the times they've committed spiritual, mental adultery against Him. What an amazing love this is. Amazing. The world doesn't understand it, but the sad thing is the world doesn't even know it. The world turns to the idol of human love as if human love We're the be-all and the end-all of of this life. And so the world sings about human love. All of its songs, for the most part, are about romance. They're more about lust than they're about love, many times. But it's in the videos, isn't it? It's in the films, the plays, the books. It's an all an idolization of human love and an ignoring of divine love. It's the world trying to compensate because the world doesn't know about this higher love, this tremendous steadfast love of Almighty God. Now, of course, there's a place for human love. And that's a, human love is a wonderful thing. God has created us to love one another. But first things must come first. The love we need most of all, you see. Is this abiding, perfect love of God. We cannot make an idol of our husbands or our wives or our fiancés or our children. Nothing human must be in the first place or it becomes an idol. God in His love. This is the first place. 
This is what moves us to the Lord's table. I want to know more of that betrothal. I want to know more of that God who promises to commune with me, to abide with me forever. You know, when a man falls in love with a woman, he doesn't ask, first of all, is that woman rich or poor or whether she comes from a famous family or an insignificant family. It's his own love. It's his own love that determines his attitude toward her. His love which impels him to express delight in her. And so it is with God, multiplied infinitely. You see, there's no explanation for God's love. It's a mystery in himself, according to his own good pleasure. Why would God ever love someone like you and me? Well, because he loves us. But, but why? Well, because he loves us. But, but why? Well, there's nothing beyond because he loves us out of pure, one-sided, sovereign, gracious love. The only explanation for the love of God is the love of God. He takes reasons out of himself. His will moved his will. To choose some sinners to be his people. A multitude no man can number. From a multitude where everyone was equally worthy to be destroyed. Oh, the richness of God's gracious promise. Here in Hosea 2. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So, when you're a true Christian, one who belongs at the table of the Lord, you relish this abiding love of God. You just relish it. You can't understand it, but you're amazed by it. That he would love the likes of me. And that he wouldn't give up on me. That he wouldn't get tired of me. That he wouldn't say, well, I've had you long enough. And you've treated me like Israel in the Old Testament. But God says, I'm still going to love you. Despite who you are. For my love is abiding. I will betroth thee unto me forever. But then the text goes on to tell us that this love is not only an abiding love, but it's a blossoming love. It just blossoms more and more in in insecurity. It's not a fake blossom, or it's not a blossom that will disappear after a few weeks like many of our spring blossoms do, but it's a blossom that unfolds more and more and more. Listen to the text. Yea, yea. I will not only betroth thee to me forever, but I will betroth thee thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies, even in faithfulness. It's like it's just a flower of love just unfolding one petal after another. You can't get enough. And God just keeps promising one thing after another. His promises are so rich, so multi-layered, so full of uh, uh, the blossoms of His grace. 
And those blossoms with God are very secure. Now, if we break this down and look at them, I, I think we can really look at them in, in three Three categories here. The first is righteousness and judgment. I think we can take these two together. This is referring to the justice of God. I will love thee in a way of my justice. This is amazing. This makes the abiding love all the more amazing because you see, it's that quality of God's character, justice, by which he must hate sin and must punish sin. Now doesn't that seem strange? Here's a God who says, I'm going to enter into covenant with you. I'm going to love you forever. And I'm going to betroth thee, you, thee is singular, individual people. I'm going to betroth you to me in righteousness and judgment, in justice. All the demands of my justice are fully exhausted in my love for you for only one reason, of course, and we know that from the whole of the Bible, because Jesus Christ came to do the two things to pay the demands of my justice in his passive obedience to put away your sin by suffering and dying for you as your substitute, and in his active obedience to by obeying the law for you so that you have a right to eternal life also as your substitute. And when you, by grace, believe in Him alone, that transaction of imputation, my righteousness, my justice, is satisfied when Jesus pays the full price to redeem you, takes over your sins, and you take over His righteousness. And so the psalmist says, I will go forth in the strength of the Lord my God, and I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. Robert Murray McShane put it like this, You give more glory to the justice of God when you believe in Jesus than if you were to go to hell forever. Let me say that again. You give more glory to the justice of God when you believe in Jesus than if you were to go to hell forever. What does McShane mean by that? Well, he goes on to explain. He says, if a sinner goes to hell forever, he can never pay back the debt he owes to the justice of God. Because that justice is never satisfied as a sinner just keeps on sinning and has no substitute. He keeps on suffering, sinning, suffering, sinning, suffering, There's still more to suffer because there's still more sin to atone for. And it goes on forever with no end. But McShane says the moment you, by grace, trust in Christ alone for salvation, instantaneously you satisfy the justice of God because Christ has suffered all that God's justice requires and you put your whole life into Him, into it. And therefore to believe in Christ alone is to satisfy all that God demands from sinners. In the American Civil War, there were two men called Wyatt, W-Y-A-T-T, and a Mr. Pratt. Mr. Wyatt was called up by his government to fight for the northern states against the south. He was a family man, and he didn't want to fight at all. And so his close friend, Mr. Pratt, promised he would take on Mr. Wyatt's name 
enlist in the army instead as a substitute, which he did. He went to war, and Mr. Pratt was killed in battle. And sometime later, the government discovered the trick that Mr. Wyatt had played, and they sent a letter summoning Mr. Wyatt to enlist in the army. And interestingly, he replied by letter, you cannot call me up for service to the country now because I am legally dead. I have died by proxy. Well, the government took him to court. And the judge pronounced he was correct. It's a strange case, you might say. But the the judge said, you are legally dead. The government had no power to call you up to service anymore. Now, you might debate that case and think the judge judged wrongly. But you see, in God's case, when his son takes your place, it's perfectly just. And there's no tricks involved. There's no tricks involved. And so when you believe in him alone for salvation, God receives Christ's obedience so that you may now be dead to the law in terms of justifying you by the body of Christ. And God will not make demand payment twice, Isaiah says, Isaiah 40, for your sins. They're all paid for in Christ. And so God says, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and judgment. The righteousness and justice that I have in myself will be satisfied by my Son on your behalf. And so we have peace. We have peace that passes all understanding in the righteousness and the justice of God himself through the double obedience of his son. But God goes on here. He lists two more things we could, we could bring together here. I will betroth thee unto me in loving kindness and in mercies. Well, if his justice in Christ is secure and makes our souls blossom with joy, certainly his loving kindness, his chesed love, his faithful, covenant, loyal love will make our souls blossom and flower with joy and with love in return. God has given himself to us that for his own love's sake, he's taken his people out of this world and spoken to them, as it were, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And you never, you never get to understand the reason why, do you? Not even in eternity, I don't think. But all you can say when you're the object of that love is even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. And you don't want to quarrel with God when he loves you with such a love, do you? It's just amazing, this loving kindness of God is overwhelming. You know, the wonder is not that people get lost and go to hell. The wonder isn't that God condemns people to hell. The amazing thing is that God saves anyone. He he didn't save any of the angels that fell, the devils. He didn't offer them salvation. The gospel is just pure love. It's pure, amazing Kindness, chesed, on the part of God. I will betroth thee to me 
and loving kindness and mercies. Puritans used to speak about being mercied by God. You, dear child of God, you're mercied by God day by day by day by day. Mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Just like John says in John 1, grace upon grace, grace laminated to grace, grace on top of grace, grace and mercy shall follow me. Psalm 23, all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, the amazing, amazing love of God. I will betroth thee to me. I'll win your heart. I'll engage my heart to you. And I'll get your heart engaged to me by my own loving kindness and my own mercies upon you. Mercy is compassion for those who are miserable. But without God, we're miserable. But He mercies us. And He draws us with Himself, with His own character. I am who I am. I was what I was. I am that I am. I shall be what I shall be. I'm an unchangeable God. My loving kindness cannot change. My covenant loyalty cannot be taken away. I will mercy you forever. And then there's one more blossom here. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. In faithfulness. The language here in Hebrew is, is God taking an oath. God putting an oath on top of a promise like he does in Hebrews 6. For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee. Surely multiplying I will multiply thee. Here it's as if God is saying, Well, surely, surely I will betroth thee to me in righteousness. Surely, surely I will betroth thee unto me in judgment, in loving kindness, in mercies, because I am faithful. I am faithful. Your anchor, the anchor of your soul, is sure and steadfast. This is a secure blossom of my grace. And it will enter into within the veil where the forerunner is for us, even Jesus. A high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I betroth you to me in unbreakable faithfulness. In a really good earthly marriage, both partners bask themselves in their partner's sense of integrity and trustworthiness and righteousness and loving kindness and faithfulness. In this heavenly betrothal, it is absolutely sure. God will even betroth thee unto me, unto myself, God says, in faithfulness. And what's the result? Well, that's the third mark. We don't only abide in the Lord and blossom in the Lord, but we will know the Lord. Look at the last words of Verse 20, and thou shalt know the Lord. Thou shalt know the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you know the Lord, you may have your whole life grounded in the Lord. And there is a reality in that relationship that's more real to you. And the church pews you're sitting on right now, 
and you consciously depend on Him for all that you have, yes, but more for all that you are and for all that you need. When you get up in the morning, you say, you you want to hear the voice of God coming to you today. You want to know Him better through His Word today. You want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ today. You want to say with Samuel, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. It's interesting when Samuel heard that voice. Samuel, Samuel, boys and girls. He went to Eli, didn't he? And what did he say? Well, the Bible says that he said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli said, Go lay down again. I, I, I didn't call you. And then the Bible interprets it and says, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Did not yet know the voice of the Lord. But you see, when you come to know the Lord, then this book we call the Bible becomes the voice of the Lord. Like Thomas Watson said, the whole Bible is like a love letter sent to a child of God. This is the voice of the Lord. And every morning as we open it, every day as we walk through our day, it open it again from meal to meal, from private devotion to private devotion, family worship. What we are saying when we are a believer, help me to know thee better, Lord. And when we come up to church, same thing. When we use any of the spiritual disciplines, what we are saying is, help me know thee more. I want to know thee more. That's a sign of grace. That's a mark. That's a mark of being betrothed to the Lord. I think I told you once or maybe twice before that William Perkins, somewhere in his writings, gives uh, 15 marks of what it means to be a child of God. He gets done with all 15. He says, well, maybe, maybe you still, maybe you still don't know whether you're a believer or not. Well, I'm going to give you one more mark, he says. And this mark, every single believer can say yes to. The smallest babe, the most advanced. Do you desire to know God better? If you can't say yes to that, you don't belong at the table of the Lord. If you can say yes to that, you belong at the table of the Lord. Unless you're persisting in some notorious known sin... But you see, a believer, a believer wants to know God better. And that's the beauty, that's the beauty of this betrothal. See, if you really love your spouse, you, you can make, you can make a, a list of a hundred qualities you're looking for. The perfect person, right? And you can list them all. You can spit them out of your computer. And then you think about your spouse and you say, you know what? She's better than this whole list. I love her more than... I don't love a list. I love a person. I love a person. And I love her like I can't love anyone else. 
And you see, that's how a believer feels about God. God has wonderful attributes, wonderful qualities. You can make a list of uh, 50, 100 in the Bible. And they're all wonderful. And we praise God for who He is in every attribute, and every attribute is God. But there's something about God that I love Him as He is, just as He is. And I want to know Him better, 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 because He's so lovable. He's so full, so infinite in His beauty that I just never get to the end of wanting to know Him better. I will betroth the end to me forever in righteousness, in judgment, in loving kindness, in mercies, even in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. Praise God. And that is one of the greatest purposes of the Lord's Supper, that we will know Him better. What, why is the Lord's Supper here? To strengthen your faith. Your faith in who? In God. To know God better. It always doesn't happen in one day, does it? It's a growing process. Samuel had to come back three times, and finally Eli perceived that it was the Lord speaking. And Eli said, now next time you go down and lay down, Samuel, say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And Samuel did that. And God came close to him, spoke to him. You see, that's how God speaks to us still today, through his word, through the truth of his word. That's why when you're a child of God... You can't. You can't grow without the Bible. It's God's Word to you. Sometimes you, you meet believers who say, oh, I'm backsliding and things are so dark for me. And you say, well, where, where, where are you at in the Scriptures? Well, it's so dark I can't read. The, you can't read the Scriptures. Yeah, well, one man said to me, it's an abomination to the Lord if I read the Scriptures because I'm so wicked. Well, <laughs> You, you, you can't get to know God better apart from His Word. And so, a child of God, you see, is bonded to the Word of God. The way you walk with God today is through the Word. Enoch walked with God, but he didn't have the Bible, but God communicated with him directly. God communicates with us today through the Word, which is even better because it's a sure word of God. Peter said it's more. It's more than being on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Well, if you know these marks of being betrothed to the Lord, abiding in the Lord, you can't let the Lord alone because He can't let you alone. And you know something of His blossoming graces in you that you come to know more and more of His righteousness and His chesed and His faithfulness. And you come to appreciate those things more and more about God and just love Him more for who He is. And you want to know Him better. Well, you belong at the table of the Lord. No matter how small your experience is, no matter how big your experience is, no matter what your experience is, If you know the marks of betrothal, you belong at the table of betrothal where he says, come unto me and I will signify and seal as surely as you eat this bread and drink this wine that your sins are washed away in my blood.
So let this be an encouragement to you tonight, dear people of God. But also for those of you who don't know the Lord, who don't know anything about what it means to abide in Him and blossom in Him and desire to know Him better, it's not for you yet. But it can be. Bend the knee. Confess your sin. Flee to this wonderful God. And trust in Him alone for salvation. He'll never cast you away. Amen. Gracious God, we thank Thee so much for Thy betrothal grace and for mercying us and loving us in Thy chesed kindness far, far, far above our wildest imagination. And certainly, far, far, far above our just desert. O Lord, mercy us again on the coming Lord's Day. And let us taste sweet communion under word and sacrament with Thee. That we would come out of the next Sabbath knowing Thee just a bit better than we've ever known Thee before. O God, bring us greater, greater realization of the depths of thy betrothal, the depths of thy love. For thou dost love thy people with a love that Paul said goes beyond every height and every breadth and every depth. Who can understand the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Lord God, we thank thee for thyself as Father, for thyself as Son, and for thy Holy Spirit, who works that love out graciously, sovereignly in our hearts. Help us. Be near to us. And do not allow us to set up any idols, anything, any person we love more than thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.